I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for December has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Dr. Don Schaffner, a distinguished professor and extension specialist in food science at Rutgers University. He does some teaching and a lot of writing, and he even hosts a podcast on microbial food safety. I'm sure we'll come back around to that um, very soon, but how's it going, Don? Hey, Brett. I'm doing good. I am curious about what well, food safety is a pretty broad uh or spectrum, you, you could think a lot of things. What exactly is your area of expertise? Well, I like to tell people that I study food poisoning, or I like to qualify by saying um, I study microbial food safety. So if you're interested in advice about pesticides or organic diets or nutrition, I'm not the guy. But if you want to talk about salmonella or listeria or E. coli food poisoning, that's my expertise. That's perfect. I've been wanting to talk about salmonella all day. <laughs> What, uh, what, what, I, I guess, have you, have you had a lot of real world, uh, contact with the outbreaks and things that have happened over the years? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. So I, uh, I'm not, um, I'm not an epidemiologist. So that means I don't actually study outbreaks as they happen, although I'm very fascinated by, by that field. Um, and I don't work for a regulatory agency. So generally I find out about outbreaks the same time, uh, that everybody else does. But, uh, because my job, uh, focuses on extension and that is the, the outreach part of the university, what that means is that, uh, sometimes, uh, regular people, uh, have questions about food safety, like what to do when the power in their refrigerator goes out. You know, sometimes they'll call me. And also the teaching that I do, I work with people in the food industry to give them the training that they need to hopefully prevent a food poisoning outbreak from happening at their company. So I I learn about this stuff uh, kind of after it happens instead of as it's happening. But then very often because uh, uh, because I'm, I'm out there on the web and I'm, I'm in academia, uh, I do a lot of work with the news media. So very often, you know, I'll get a call for a quote or an opinion when somebody's working on a food poisoning outbreak story. So, so you're, you're an expert. Um, not necessarily a, a frontline guy. Yeah, that's that's a that's a generous and f- somewhat accurate description. <laughs> okay, so can I get some free advice on what to do if my refrigerator goes out? What's the Absolutely. first thing I need to worry about? Absolutely. Well, I was looking at the forecast where you are in Minnesota. So what you should do is take the food outside, <laughs> <laughs> just crack um, the door a little bit. Yeah, but um, so. Generally speaking, when, when the power goes out, uh, the best thing to do is to try to keep the door closed. So keep the door to your refrigerator closed. If you, um, you know, certainly keep the door to your, your freezer. If you have a, a chest freezer or something, it's, that is going to stay colder longer the more full it is and the more that you keep the door closed sure. but then obviously uh at some point it's it's going to reach the point where the food starts to spoil i would say one good piece of advice um whether it's a freezer or a refrigerator is invest in an inexpensive refrigerator thermometer uh and and that will tell you because very often like if you were to call me for advice the first question i'm going to ask is well how long has the power been out and then also what's the temperature of the food or what's the temperature of, uh, in, in the, in the refrigerator or in, in the freezer. And so if you invest in an, an inexpensive, uh, refrigerator 
um, thermometer, then you're going to have that information. That's going to help me make an educated guess as to the relative safety or or what to do uh, in that circumstance. Can I assume that certain foods are are more prone to microbial uh, issues than others? Say fish, meat. Are there things you should get out of your your refrigerator before other things if the power is out? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so we used to teach people that the foods that uh, contain pathogens are you know animal foods like uh, uncooked meat and, and fish and things like that. Now, of course, if you've been following the newspaper headlines over the last decade or so, you'll know that uh, fresh fruits and vegetables are also have also caused uh, food poisoning outbreaks. But um, and then, you know, there's an interesting kind of thing, too, that I like to talk about with people with respect to milk. So if you have pasteurized milk in your fridge, um, that's never going to become unsafe when the power goes out because it's been pasteurized. So it doesn't contain any pathogenic bacteria. But what will happen as that milk uh, sits there and the temperature goes up is it will start to spoil. But yes, you're right. If you, if you are faced with a power loss and you still have the ability to cook food, I would say certainly you can, and you could kind of take an economic perspective and say, okay, so what's the most valuable food in my fridge? What's going <laughs> to cost me the greatest, uh, uh, pain if I lose it? And then go ahead and, and start cooking that, cooking that food up. And again, in most cases, that's probably going to be meat, poultry, fish, things like that. So go ahead and, and, and cook those. Or like I said, if you think if you think the power is going to come back within a fairly short period of time, you could take those and, and throw them in the, in the, the deep freeze um, if, if you think power uh, might be coming back soon. But, but again, if, if it's not, then you're just kind of at, at some point, you're just sort of stuck and you just have to sort of throw it all out and, and start over. I was in that position once and ended up eating um, some salmon mm. that, uh, that I shouldn't have. Ooh. I didn't eat salmon again for four years. I couldn't even be in the kitchen when the oils were like in the air. Yeah, it's funny how how our brain does that. You know, we associate a particular food with an unpleasant uh, event, and then and then just uh, yeah, our brains just just make that connection for us, and then uh, yeah, can't eat that food, which is too bad because like salmon's like healthy food, right? Uh, it's supposed to be good for your brain and your heart. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. Yeah, I like to think bacon's good for me too, though. Yeah, me too. Um, so what, the spinach a while back was that E. coli or was that salmonella? Uh, well, there have been a, a number of different outbreaks, but I think probably the big one you're thinking about that was E. coli. E. coli, and what exactly is E. coli? Like, what is it? Is it? I honestly, I don't know anything about it. Is it like a fatal? Is it an infection? Like what? I don't even know. Oh, that's that's good though. That's you're coming from a very uh, very uh, naive point. So mm-hmm. there's there's lots of work for me to do here. But yeah, so you're asking the right question. So so E. coli. Well, first of all, we can say that E. coli. Actually, right now, as you and I sit here and talking with one another, we both uh, probably have E. coli in our intestines, and we have what what a food microbiologist would call generic E. coli. So we have E. coli in our intestines that's not making us sick, but there are certain strains of E. coli. That have that have for whatever reason have certain genes uh, uh, in them that make uh, make them virulent that make them cause disease and so um, the 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 particular outbreak we're talking about here the spinach outbreak uh, some of this pathogenic E. coli got on the spinach somehow and again we're you can you know there was an investigation and there's reports on the web that you can read we're still not completely sure and in ma- in many cases we're never completely sure what caused the outbreak um, but we know. 
that somehow this pathogenic microorganism got onto the food and then enough people ate it and, and then got sick. But there's actually a whole series of events that have to happen. So the food has to become contaminated. Um, it has to survive the processing process. And in fact, in some cases, we think that if conditions are right, the you know microorganisms are not inert. They're they're actually living growing systems and so you can you can have multiplication so the two the two e coli or the one e coli that was on that spinach leaf uh, over time becomes 10 or 100 or a thousand and then people eat that and then and then not everybody that that eats even one pathogenic e coli would necessarily get sick so it's kind of like a probability game and then depending on how many you eat your probability of illness goes up uh, and then, and what happens for that illness to happen? The E. coli have to attach to the wall of your intestine. They have to invade. They have to cross that that barrier, and then they get into your body and they basically cause an infection. And for many people, it may be a mild illness. For some people, it can be very serious, and for some people, it's even fatal. Um, and so, uh, and so, the you know, the moral of the story is well, you know, with respect to meat. And again, E. coli, pathogenic E. coli has been associated with ground beef, for example. The moral of the story there uh, is um, cook your meat. Obviously, unless you like a, a cooked spinach, that's probably not, not going to be a, a viable option there. So in that particular case, then what you want to do is, is you kind of have to trust that the person that's producing that spinach for you is doing it in a way that's safe. And then uh, you do your part. And, and keep it in, in the refrigerator until you're going to eat it. So if there are maybe low levels of E. coli, you're not, you're not allowing them to multiply. Um, and then, uh, and then again, like, and, and, you know, again, most of the time, most of the spinach out there is in fact completely safe. We're not all getting sick all the time from eating fresh produce. In fact, in fact, just like the salmon comment, um, you know, fresh produce is good for us and we should, uh, we should be eating it. And, uh, and, you know, so, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's the that's the the world that we live in, for better or worse. So you were a little vague, and I may have to pause here because I have a dog upstairs going crazy. I heard him. Um, but uh, you were a little vague about how how these bacteria—they're bacteria, right? Yep. How they mutate, how they become virulent. Um, is is it is it that bacteria can evolve faster than the rest of the world? Because you you, you hear about viruses. Uh, changing to uh, basically override immune systems. How does that, how does that happen? Is that part of your study? Do you get into that at all? Right. So that, that's not my direct area of expertise, but certainly I can, I can give a, a, a somewhat of an answer to it. So, so, you know, again, uh, microbial food safety, the kind that I do mostly focuses on bacteria, but uh, certainly I'm interested in viruses. I'm interested in parasites, which are very different organisms from from bacteria. Um, and certainly the issue of mutation is an interesting one. We think, and again, a part part of it is this is not my direct area of expertise, but part of it is I think scientists, we just simply don't know. Um, there are uh, genes that bacteria acquire which allow them to do things like attach to your intestinal wall or once they've attached to go through the intestinal wall or when once they're in your body to evade your immune system and and though we think that 
and again, this is this is all hypothesis based on comparing the the genes in pathogenic E. coli to the genes in other pathogenic bacteria. We think that these E. coli apparently acquired these particular virulence genes, or at least some of these virulence genes, from related species. So, for example, one of the things that makes pathogenic E. coli pathogenic is something called a shigatoxin, and a shigatoxin is actually a toxin that looks very much like a toxin that's in another organism called Shigella. And so we think that somewhere along the line, an E. coli cell and a Shigella cell got together and they exchanged some genetic material and the E. coli ended up with these uh, the genes that allow it to make this shigatoxin. So um, uh, it's a fascinating area. And it's something that I, again, it's not my direct area of expertise, but it's something that, that I try to keep up with because it's an important part of, of science and, and microbial food safety today. So in the world of micro bacteria is that like mating or is did did it actually mutate we think it's probably analogous more like mating rather than simply mutation and and again if you know even even a little bit about genetics what 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 you know what we know is that most mutations in fact are fatal um so mutation from a the or, organism's perspective are a bad thing because um it results in a change that decreases the ability of the organism to survive or in fact just kills the organism outright. And so it's very unusual that a mutation actually is advantageous. And But in the, in the specific case of acquiring these specific genes, we think it was, again, more like a mating process than just simply a, a, a mutation process. Wow. Okay, so speaking of fatal mutations, I'm going to take a sponsor break. <laughs> I am horrible at segues. <laughs> um, but we'll take this opportunity to talk about HostGator. Nothing to do with bacteria at all. They're very healthy, very safe. Um, and they are a premier web hosting provider. So if you're looking to start a website, HostGator can help you get started with monthly hosting plans, one-click installs, and tons of other features that make getting your site up, up and running easy. If you're a more advanced user or a business, HostGator can take care of you with reseller plans, VPS and dedicated servers, and HostGator guarantees 99.9% uptime no matter what your size or needs. If you're a WordPress user, you'll love their one-click installs and optimized hosting platform. And when you host with HostGator, you get unlimited disk space and bandwidth. They have free site builder tools that are super easy to use, but if you find yourself needing any help, they have 24-7 support to ensure that everything is running smoothly. So head on over to HostGator.com to learn more. And when you decide to purchase, don't forget to use the coupon code DANSENTME and get 30% off of everything you will get at HostGator.com. Okay, so we were talking before the show, and you you have some feelings or at least some experience with the Mac PC kind of debate. Yes, I do. Um, and, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I follow a lot of people on the internet and most of them uh, are, are Mac users. And in fact, you know, until, well, I mean, I would say I consider myself one of them. I mean, until uh, about six years ago, six or seven years ago, whenever the iPhone one came out, I was a dedicated, uh, you know, guy in the PC community. But then a number of things happened. Uh, a, a colleague of mine 
uh, showed me her iPhone one, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is the future." My older son went off to college, and he asked uh, for a Mac as his laptop to take to college. And then within within a short amount of time, he said, "Dad, you know, I know the way you are, and I know the way computers are, and the, what you like about computers. And trust me, you will like a Mac." And then, of course, you know, a bunch of the the people I'd been uh, following on the internet, you know, as a dedicated reader of forty three folders and Merlin talking about. Uh, Quicksilver and Kinkless GTD and stuff like that. And it, it finally reached a tipping point for me where I said, okay, you know, I'm just going to bite the bullet. And I have to say it was disorienting for a couple of weeks, but since then, I just haven't looked back. And and I've been, you know, really happy to have a Mac and very happy with, with you know, the, the tools that it provides and using it. But because I a lot of the work that I do and one of the great things about the work that I do is it's collaborative. And so what that means is that I have to work with people um, using Macs and, and using PCs. And for better or worse, the, the academic community, I would say by and large, uses Windows. Um, and, and even those of us that use Macs, we're using the, the Microsoft suite of products. So we're using Word and PowerPoint and Excel. And e- even for some of the things that I do, I, I even use uh, Microsoft Access because I needed a relational database to do something. So it's, and I know I'm, and I'm trying in, in little ways to kind of, move things forward for example the the stuff that i do with with our podcast i i've started using markdown for that and i've got my my co-host using markdown and i got the guy that does our show notes using using markdown so um we're kind of moving away from doing everything in microsoft word as much as we can but but at the end of the day it's kind of the gorilla in the room and you have to you have to do as i was saying before the show started I have to, at the end of the day, I have to get stuff done. And if I'm going to get stuff done, I need to use tools that I know how to use. And, and for better or worse, you know, I know how to make Microsoft Word do what I needed to do to get things done at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I, I recently, I started writing a book independently and it got picked up by a publisher. And they require that all the collaborative portions of it be done in nicest, I think that's how he said it. Nicest Writer Pro. I've never even heard of that. It's it's been around for a long time. Like it was one of the first word processors I used when I got a Mac, which also happened to be in the Kinkless GTD era. Um, I'm surprised you remember that. But uh, I I uh, I panned it at the time, and uh, it recently got a huge boost, and it's become like a very powerful uh, word processor with change tracking and collaborative features. And uh, I'm I'm actually really impressed with it, but it is it's a big learning curve. It's it's because I'm used to I've worked in Markdown almost purely for years now, and using a word processor at all is uh, a, a overwhelming task. All those buttons make my head hurt. But I think once you once you know how to do something, once you once you have a system and you know how to use it, it's. It's not that you shouldn't be willing to learn new systems. It's that you lose productivity by switching. And you have to weigh, will I gain enough productivity switching against how, how, how long is the learning curve going to take me? And I think that's a, the reason that a lot of like larger companies are still using PCs, even though members of the company would love to be using Macs. You have IT departments that are very... 
it's working, why break it? Well, and and I think that there, and again, there's been some really nice uh, discussions on on the um, accidental tech podcast about enterprise software and why things are so entrenched. And I and I think that a lot of that really makes sense. I mean, it's you know the guys, and this is you know again something that that uh, is is you know there's a lot of great things about working in academia. There's a lot of frustrating things too, and part of it is that you have people making decisions that impact what you do. For better or worse, and and so uh, you know, I can get. I have a if I want it for for work purposes, I have a, a site license. I can access the Rutgers site license to get all of the Microsoft suite of products, both on the PC side and on the Mac side, and that's a powerful that's a powerful incentive. And so that if I need if my graduate students need tools, well, again, if they're doing uh, if they're working on a Rutgers owned you know work related. Mac, well, you know, they can get these tools for free. And there's not so much anymore, but back in the day, there was training available for those tools. And so that made a difference. And so there's just, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of things that, that make, that you have to factor into that decision. Um, like, okay, so how much productivity am I going to lose before I start gaining productivity? And I, and I did, I did that calculation back when I switched from a PC to a Mac. And I've been very, very happy with that. But to try to, when I think about making that switch, you know, away from the, the Microsoft suite of, of products, it's um, it would it would really make a significant productivity hit, and then it would break other things that I'm not even you know I'm not I'm probably not even aware of, and that would cause further losses in productivity. I don't disagree, and I, I don't I don't disagree with that uh, that uh, train of thought and the decisions either. I've never had I never had to be in that situation. I, I left Windows long before I got a Mac, and I was a Linux guy for a long time. But for me, computers have always been uh, more fun than than work. Most of my work as uh, in early in my career, I used whatever computer was there. I wasn't entrenched in any system. It was easy to make the switch. But like, what are the main tools that uh, that require PCs for you? Well, uh, one of them is there are, uh, in terms of the, the, the modeling stuff that we do, um, we use Excel for sort of simple calculations. But there's an add-in for Microsoft Excel called At Risk, which allows, some, allows you to do essentially Monte Carlo simulation. So it basically it takes Excel and it says instead of just a regular Excel cell, you can actually take a cell and say, okay, actually each time I recalculate this spreadsheet, this cell is going to have a a different value, and that value can be drawn from a normal distribution or a Weibull distribution, or you know, an almost a dizzying array of different different distributions. And so, we use that when we're doing Monte Carlo simulation and quantitative risk assessment. And what that does is, again, it's this it's this efficiency thing. It allows a graduate student who only know, who doesn't know programming, and who knows how to use Microsoft Excel with a little bit of tu- you know, teaching and, and tutoring from me to create it relatively easily without really learning any programming. It allows them to create a risk assessment that we can then use to do these fairly complicated uh, sets of calculations. Um, now, I know there are other tools out there. I mean, and again, a lot of my, my high-powered colleagues are using R and 
again, you know, it's, it's, if I had a week to just do nothing else, I would love to dig in and, and begin to learn to use R, but it just hasn't reached that, that breaking point yet. Um, there are certain, uh, functions in Excel that in fact only exist on the Windows side. So to do certain, uh, histogram creating functions, I have to actually boot into go, you know, load parallels and, and, and boot into, to Windows, um, Windows XP, cause that's the, that's the last Windows that I use. That's the one that I, I what, oh, and what, I love it. I love what it. What is the like, limitation that, that keeps oh, them it's my brain. <laughs> no, I mean that that makes like the oh. histogram functions not work. I think it has. I, I'm not an expert, but I think it has something to do with Visual Basic or Visual Basic for applications uh, or something, something, something. I yeah, I, I don't know. There's some reason why that's not VBS support. There. On yeah, yeah, I got it. That makes sense. And then there's there's another application that I've used since graduate school called Sigma Plot, and Sigma Plot is absolutely fantastic at making graphs. It makes beautiful scientific quality graphs. You can do all sorts of complicated fancy things. You have infinite control uh, and unfortunately it's a Windows product. And so what that means um, is that I have to, again, boot into, into Windows to use that. And, you know, I mean, I guess there's, I'm sure, and I, you know, there's a couple of times even I've started down that road of, okay, today is the day I'm going to stop using Sigma plot and I'll start doing research on what is the Mac graphics app that I'm going to switch to. And a couple of times now I've said, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep using Sigma plot because it's just, I just need to get this graph done today. I don't have time to, to research this. Well, if I have some free time, I'll look it up and 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 try to help you determine the learning curve on it. I, I did, I did, I did look at your app recommendations for 2003. I didn't see anything for for graphics, but I hope it meant 13. Uh, yeah, that's what. I, what did I say? Three. <laughs> I don't even remember 2003. Oh, oh, it's tough to get old, Brent. You you uh, you, you you forget stuff. Well, and what, that's, what year it is. That's part of this too. Is the older I get, the less excited I am about starting over with things and and I'm sure that that's going to continue at a at a uh, on a curve as I get older um, like the that's- idea of like dropping the idea of learning something new just to make a small change in my workflow is is getting more and more intimidating as I age well, that that's actually very heartening for me to hear because I, I you know, I, I read the stuff that you write and follow what you and other folks on the internet do, and it just makes me sad that I don't have the energy or the enthusiasm to do that. But, but if it's just because I'm old, then hey, no problem. That's that gives me an excuse. Here's so the I'm, thing, I'm, though. Yeah, it it prevents Alzheimer's. If you if you if you ditch everything you know, everything you've done for a career. And, uh, and, and, and pick up a new trade, a new, even a new way of working. I think maybe even switching to a Mac. It, it lowers the, the risk of Alzheimer's tremendously. There was, uh, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but there was, uh, a bunch of nuns. What do you call that? A convent? And at the age of 50, they all had to do this. They had to give up whatever their trade was and learn something entirely new. Go from like fishing to basket weaving. And, uh, it, they had zero instances over, I think, a hundred years of dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. Well, that's that's cool. That's it's very cool, cool, but it it means that as we get older and lazier, we have to work twice as hard to uh, <laughs> to keep ourselves sane. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that. <clears throat> 
the thing, at least, at least right now, I mean, the reason why I've resisted, uh, becoming a department chair or, you know, doing some administrative function is I still feel like there's just still too much science left to be done. So I figure as long as I'm, uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, students keep you young, right? So as long as I have new graduate students to train and as long as I have new science to do and new things to think about, I figure that'll, that'll keep me young. I'm not about to take up basket weaving, but, but I, I figure just as part of my day job, uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm at my home. I'm hoping anyway, that's what's going to keep me young. I, love, I wish you the best of luck. I, I, <laughs> I just got a new niece yesterday. And I think the fact that all my siblings are having children is, uh, is making me feel, I think younger might make me feel older, but I decided not to have kids a long time ago. My wife and I both agreed on that, but watching my, my siblings just pop them out is kind of, uh, I don't know. It's heartening. I guess I understand why they would do it. Yeah, well, my my uh, I have uh, two kids from a previous marriage, but my my uh, wife and I, she didn't want to have kids, and I was I was happy with that decision because I look at some of these guys that are like my age, having kids, and I'm like, oh no, thanks, I just don't have the energy for that. <laughs> but uh, but but it's cool to have nieces and nephews because then you can like spend exactly, time with them, yeah, spoil them, the and then give them back. <laughs> That's my goal is just be the crazy uncle that everyone loves to go see. I'm not like the your- crazy drunk uncle. I'm looking at your Skype picture, and that definitely looks crazy, Uncle, to me. Yeah that that was that was a long time ago. I don't have that much hair anymore. I always forget that that's my Skype picture until someone I'm talking to says, "What? <laughs> it's a great picture. Do you really look like that? I don't. That's me when I was uh, 20, 19, oh, wow. I think. I'm and now you look like a, a really, uh, really cold guy in the snow holding your uh, iPhone. That's also a great picture. That's uh, it was modeled after. It, it, for anyone who doesn't know, this is my current Twitter avatar. We're talking about. Um, it's modeled after the final scene of The Shining, where Jack Nicholson was frozen in the snowbank. And uh, I, I've been impressed. I know I got it right because almost once a day, maybe every other day, I get random people saying, "You know, you look exactly like the end of The Shining." Or your picture reminds me of this scene, and they'll send me a, a photograph of that, uh, a still shot from the movie. Oh, that's cool. So I did it. I pulled it off. It was uh, myself and Peter Boyson, and I don't remember why the iPhone is in it. It was pivotal to the shot. It was something, it had something to do with something we were talking about in a back chat on the unofficial Apple weblog. And I went out and I, I made the shot, and it had something to do with an iPhone, but I've completely forgotten what. Fascinating. Anyway, anyway, that was a weird tangent. Yes, it was. I don't even remember. That was like a tangent on a tangent, and I lost. I lost track. We should do a sponsor. Uh, how about Shutterstock? Do you use Shutterstock? I don't. I, I use a you bunch use, of like, stuff almost that, all of our other sponsors. Yeah, yeah, but and you know, and I've, I've actually I've checked out Shutterstock. And I, it's like I almost want to find a reason to go use it because the pictures are so great. They really are. I mean, you can get you can go a long way with just image searches on Google. And find a bunch of royalty-free stuff. But if you really want quality images, you have to go to a stock site. And and no lie, Shutterstock has become my favorite. And uh, not just because they sponsor us. But it's really... Here, I'll tell you why. Uh, <laughs> because at Shutterstock.com, you'll find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and a million video clips. Start your search at Shutterstock.com to find that perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find images from around the world to suit your project. 
You can choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. You can choose whatever fits your need at the time and never have to compromise. Even if, even if you just need one image for a blog or a mock-up, which I usually do, uh, you can do that very easily. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new since they add 20,000 new images every day and 12,000 videos every week. And it's more affordable than you think because there's no extra charge for large files. Normally, you have to pay a premium for the high-resolution files. And uh, at Shutterstock, you can download any image at any size and you just pay one price. They don't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, you can just take them. Easily curate and share light, share pictures via light boxes. Uh, so you can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own light box gallery as you search. And you can have as many light boxes as you want. Um, and then you can also use their iPad app to do this. There's also something called enhanced license access. If you like an image and you want to run it on print or swag for your trade shows, they can get you an enhanced license for any image. They also have a huge library of vectors, icons, infographic templates, and video clips should you need any of those. If you need help at Shutterstock.com, you get an account rep dedicated to you who will answer any questions, and they have 24-hour support during the week. So, to sign up for a free browse account, go to Shutterstock.com, no credit card needed, and when you find the images you like and you decide to purchase, use the offer code DANSENTME1213 and get 25% off of any package you put together over at Shutterstock.com. All right. Well, we're a little ahead of schedule, so we can spend some good time talking about our top three picks. Sounds good. What's your first? Right. So my, my first pick is the Edemotix headphones, and uh, the particular uh, Edemotix uh, headphone that I'm using right now is the, is the HF three headphone and so this is i mean i spend a lot of time connected to my iphone listening to podcasts and 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 doing stuff i do all of my teleconferences at work i don't i don't use the piece of crap uh phone that that uh, that's in my office i just use my iphone for everything and so i spend a lot of time with earbuds in my ear and these uh, i'm so glad i found out about these Edemotix headphones I, i've had a pair i think Almost ever since uh, I, I've had an iPhone, um, they are the the Apple earbuds do not fit in my ears. They they hurt my ears or they fall out. And and yeah. so the Edemotix comes with four different earbuds. You can swap them to find one that that fits you. There's, I guess I have big big. Uh, ear canal, so the small Edemotix, uh earbuds don't fit, but the other three uh, size ones or type ones do fit. Um, it has a longer cord. There's a clip on the cord, so I you know clip it on my on my shirt, and it can just sit comfortably in my pocket. Um, but the most impressive thing about these is that they come with a two year warranty, and I have uh, on two or three occasions, either through excessive use or just getting a bad pair right out of the box or a variety of other reasons, I've returned them within that two-year period and they have gladly serviced them or just sent me a new pair of headphones and said, you know, here you go. Um, so I've just been really impressed with their, with their customer service. They, um, they're not inexpensive. Um, they are an expensive headphone, but the, the quality is really good. Like I said, the customer support is really good. Um, if they, they have little filters in them. So if you have waxy ears, like, like I do, uh, you can change those filters and the sound quality comes right back. So nice. it's just a, it's just a really, if you spend a lot of time with, with earbuds in your ear, 
years, um, you, I, I think you, know, you should really take a look at these. They're just it's a quality product from a quality company, in my opinion. I got to say, it's really embarrassing to be on a plane and having to like squeeze earwax out of the little like, <laughs> pinhole on your earbuds <laughs> so you can hear your music again. I have waxy ears. Uh. Um, it looks like, yeah, the, the four different types of cups that come with them, they're not just sized differently. They're actually very different shapes. Have you, do you, do they, uh, I mean, is that basically based on ear shape? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why, um, why they have those different ones, but like, uh, yeah, like, like you said, there's some that are just sort of like the, the, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they have like uh, ridges, but then they have one that's like a big soft foam yeah. one. And, and that's actually the one that I use now because it, I just find that it, um, it just compresses well and mm-hmm. it fits well. But then they have sort of a more like mushroom shaped bud, bud type one as well. So yeah, those big, big foam ones that fill your ear are the ones I've had the best luck with myself. Yeah, me too. I've actually switched using over the ear headphones in most cases, but, uh, but I do, I have a collection of earbuds. Never found no matter how much I spend, I never find a perfect pair. But do you? But do you go out of the house wearing over the ear headphones? Uh, I well, you I don't, never go out I, of the house. I don't go out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I travel, you know. And when I'm on an airplane or, or anything, even walking around an airport, yeah, I wear uh, Urban Beats headphones. Mm-hmm. They're they're not expensive. They're like a hundred bucks, I think, and uh, and they sound great. But uh, especially at home. Over the over the ears, just more comfortable for me for the long term. But I might I might have to add these to my collection if if they're if they're finally going to be the perfect pair. I'm willing to try. They have a remote like a, a mic and a remote on them. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, and then and then the other thing too that's that's so great is that I guess the Apple earbuds have this now, but on that on that mic. Um, there's an up uh, arrow, up up button for volume up and volume down, and then there's a, a pause button. And so again, if you spend a lot of time where you need to, you know, constantly be, you know, in in, in noisy and then quiet environments, and you want to adjust the volume, or you'd like to, you, know, you need to pause a podcast or something, um, you know, something or music while you're while you're listening to it, it just it just lets you keep your phone in your pocket and, and do all of that right from the uh, right from the cord. Yeah, that's right. actually that's actually a requirement for me when I buy headphones now. They have to have that. It's it's too after you've had it for a while, it's too inconvenient not to have it to have to actually pull your phone out of your pocket. Oh, absolutely. Um, so here's the thing about Apple's earbuds. The current, I mean, the original ones were were pretty horrendous, but then they came out and they touted these as being. They studied hundreds of ears, and they made a pair of headphones that would fit any ear. Not mine. I know. I know. That's <laughs> that's what they said at the keynote. And honestly, I think by trying to fit a hundred different ears, they came up with something that doesn't fit ninety percent of them. Because they they, they're horrible for me. I, I I tried them for one day and I had to ditch them. Yeah, I, I, I for a while for, at one point I had to send my my Edimotics back for servicing, and so I dropped back to the Apple ones. And it just the mm-hmm. uh, you'd think after a few days maybe your ear would not hurt so much, but it was just like uh, yeah, just gotta painful. cram it in there, and then and then it hurt, it hurts, and then and then it falls out. So it's just anyway, you just can't win. I think they may actually have a deal with high end ear uh, earbud makers. So they, <laughs> they you buy the phone, you get these <laughs> these hor- horrendous earbuds, and you immediately think I need to go spend more money on headphones. So I think it's a a, a back padding kind of thing. I think you could be honest. I'm convinced there. there's a conspiracy. All right, that's awesome. 
my first one's way different. Um, I think Christina Warren, I think, mentioned this when she was first on back when it was in beta, but uh, AOL has created Altomail, A-L-T-O-M-A-I-L. And it's uh, it's an email client that handles Gmail and iCloud and Yahoo and AOL Mail. Does AOL even do mail anymore? Oh, they they do, Brett. That's how my mother uses email. <laughs> she has yeah, well, they AOL. have legacy systems. I don't yeah. think they actively create accounts anymore. I should know. I work for them, but mm-hmm. I do for a few more days anyway. Um, oh wait, now is that is that news? Yeah, breaking story. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have an official date. I have an official end date. And then I'm okay. going to dedicate myself to podcasting and writing and de- develop, de- developing. I oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I feel like I'm, I'm like at a, 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 I'm present at an important moment in history. Or maybe this was already widely known. <laughs> no, I don't think it's widely. I've mentioned, I mentioned a while back that I had quit and been denied. Uh, They wouldn't let you quit? They didn't want me to quit uh, until, you know, like uh, the relaunch and CES had come around. Um, Just because those are busy times and we were in the middle of projects. And I I accepted that and stuck around for another month or two. But yes, now it is final. Well, and I think a lot of people, if they just sort of run across you on the internet, they think that that is your day job. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised that I do what I do and have a day job. So I've decided to just go with the flow and not have a day job. And well, I think I've done the math. I think I can pull it off. I'm well, excited. I'm, I'm more yeah. excited than I am worried about it. Uh, yeah, well, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, you know, you seem like you seem like a really smart guy. And so if it doesn't work out, I'm sure that somebody else will hire you. But it's fantastic to hear that you're be, you'll be doing this, doing this great stuff that we all appreciate you for full time. Well, I, I appreciate your support. Um, anyway, Altamail from AOL, one of, their, one of their best projects ever. It's a gorgeous mail interface on the web, and it does a bunch of pretty ingenious things. There's a lot of functionality that I like in Gmail that's not here that would keep me from making a full switch. But if your needs are a little more basic and you just want a, a really nice looking, really easy to use way to read email from all your different accounts, uh, like the inbox has these stacks. Uh, you can create stacks. It comes with, by default, starred attachments, social media notifications, photos. Like it'll, it'll find all the photo attachments and create a stack for those. Um, I've created ones for GitHub notifications and ones for messages that come from my blog contact form. So they're nice and separated, and you can optionally have those skip your inbox and go straight into a stack. Um, really nice composed interface. It's got rich text tools if you're that kind of email writer. And uh, yeah, overall, I'm I'm really uh, I, just from a web design perspective, it's gorgeous. It's really well done. Yeah, I'm just looking at the website. It looks really nice. It is. I'm I'm. Terribly impressed that this came, and and not to be derisive towards AOL, they've they've been really good to me, and they have done a lot, a, a whole lot since the days of CDs and the mail. Um, and a lot of people don't realize what what AOL's behind anymore because they've kind of dropped into the background and let their brands like Engadget move forward. But uh, but this is really, I mean, I know the guys that made this, and they did a, a bang up job. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and you know, like I was saying before, I mean, my my mom like really likes AOL, and and I moved her to a Mac a few years ago, but we got her AOL. Uh, email address set up, and then for, at one point, uh, her account got hacked, and I just I was able to go in immediately and and fix it and take care of it. So I have to say, um, I, you know, as a company, I mean, I I kind of said, oh yeah, that's the that's the company that sends you discs in the mail, right? But but I, I've been very impressed with the the interactions I've had with them. They really seem like they they got their act together, and and certainly, like I said, certainly I I you know I even made a Gmail account for my mom, and she's like, no, I, I really like the AOL, so. <laughs> My wife was like that with Yahoo for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I took her away from Yahoo against her will. We're all Gmail now. Yeah, I, I, uh, my wife had a university mail account, but her style is much more conducive to Gmail. So I moved her to Gmail and then, and then basically she gradually stopped working at the university. And so now she just has, has a Gmail account and, and it works really well and she can, have tons of messages that she hasn't read in her in her inbox, and it causes nobody any concern. Nice. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm done. What do you got for number two? Yeah. So number two is uh, the fruit juice battery management app, and uh, I learned about this um, because at one point John Syracuse was ranting about. Um, battery management. I guess it was all part of this, this Mavericks, uh, improved, um, battery. Stuff. Yeah. 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 App nap stuff. And, uh, he was just complaining about, uh, that it, it, uh, that, that this ought to just be built in. And somebody sent him a recommendation for this app. And, and then I think on an ATP, he might have said, yeah, and here's the app, but I don't use it now because I can never remember to plug my, my laptop back in or something. But I was very intrigued by it. And so I have been, I've become a dedicated user of this app. And so basically the way that it works is you, it, it you run it through a, a training period and it kind of learns the state of your battery. And then every day, it tells you it it calculates through some you know some magic calculation the amount of time that you need to be on battery power to keep your battery conditioned and and to to keep its you know to keep your your battery healthy essentially and so um and i've i i don't i really don't know brett if it's if it's helping but it makes me feel like I'm doing something. <laughs> placebo, my, yeah. a battery placebo. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, every day I have like today, for example, today my target was an hour and forty-one minutes on battery, and I was actually on uh, uh, on battery for only two minutes. So the app tells me that I need to be on on battery power for another hour and thirty-nine minutes to to meet my my goal for today, um, and then it tells me um, that I, my battery has ninety-three. percent percent of its original capacity it tells me that i'm on uh 220 of my 1000 charge cycles that that are you know built into this this battery and uh i've just again like i said maybe it's a placebo effect but i really feel like i'm i'm exercising my battery every day well, by, just, by by being off of power for just a certain knowing the capacity you've lost would be very intriguing to me because i know my my macbook air does not run I, to me it seems like it runs half as long as it did when it was new and i i do have it plugged in uh probably probably 70 percent of its life um that i would be really curious to know like how bad it's gotten <laughs> even if i didn't do anything about it just that information uh might be worth what is it 9.99 oh yeah i didn't uh i did not look that up but uh, it was you know it's well it's worth uh, it's worth uh, every penny nice yeah, that's uh, 
there were apps. I don't know if you remember. Um, there were fan and battery apps that you could run on the uh, old MacBook Pros, like 2000. I don't even remember. But it was a long time ago, back when the battery would eventually just give out. And they, you could drop them out the bottom. And then there were apps that would let you run without the battery. It would like force it to override. And then oh, you cool. could control your fan speeds and everything. And you could really tweak it. I don't think that's even possible anymore. Well, I, I'm still I'm still running a uh, a fan control app, right. um, which yeah, called uh, SMC Fan Control. Oh and yeah, that's it, the one. That one's yeah. been around forever, and it's 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 great. I mean, sometimes I'll see, for example, I'll see the the my my uh, temperature getting really high, and then you know can can you know usually <laughs> usually when I boot into Windows to yeah, do something, yeah. um, and then if I want to take care of that or just you know juice it a little bit and, and kind of get get everything cooled down again, I can turn that on, and, and yeah, that's. So I've been very, very pleased with that app as well. Uh, and it just, most of the time it just sits there in the menu bar and I don't do anything with it, but it's good to know that it's there if I need it. I like to think that Apple's software hardware integration is is smart enough to uh, handle fan control reasonably well. Um, I use uh, iStat server to keep track of temperatures and fan speeds and everything. And overall, unless, and, and I, I will say that uh, running parallels is the noisiest thing I can do on my computer. But uh, overall, overall these days the fan control seems smarter than it used to be. And I don't know enough about it technically to speak to that. But No, uh, and I would I would say this the the same the same thing is is true for in my experience as well. And I actually had one of those first generation MacBook Airs that that got so hot, but uh, my my current computer, you know, the Retina MacBook Pro I'm using right now, it's just been fantastic. Nice. All right, batteries, batteries and headphones and email. And I'm going to go for, how about diff tools? Everyone needs a diff tool, right? Sure. Tell me what it is. Kaleidoscope. We talked about Kaleidoscope back when the version two beta first came out. It was like episode 19, I think, but it's, it's officially been released for a while now and it is. It was always from its first inception a couple years back. It was the best looking tool for diffing two files and just for seeing all your changes between two versions of a file. And it had good Git integration, but it didn't have merging. So you could see it all, but you had to use a different tool to merge changes. And version two added merging. And now, in my opinion, it is, it is cream of the crop for all these. I mean, Apple has tools that come with the developer tools and there are plenty of free tools available, but kaleidoscope is just a pleasure to use. I don't remember how much it costs. I think it was probably, I don't want to take a guess. I'll be uh, wrong. I'm looking at the website right now. 69.99. Yeah. That's about what I was going to guess. And I thought, Oh, maybe that's too high. Um, that's, it seems awfully expensive. Um, I didn't but pay if, that if, much, honestly, <laughs> I don't remember it being quite that high. Um, but it is, it's it's an amazing tool. It does images too. You can diff two versions of an image and see what areas of the image changed, which is marginally useful for someone like me, but I could see it being a, a selling point. Yeah. And, and and you know, if that's too much money, it's a 15-day free trial, so there you go. Yeah, give it a shot. Uh you can always switch over to uh like Delta Walker, one of the less expensive ones that are written in Java and look uh look like it. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you have a lot to to add to a diff conversation. Do you diff a lot? No, you know the the one again. You know, speak to my to my background here. The one time when I need it is mostly for Word documents, and you know, for better or worse, the 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 diffing tools, the built in diffing tools for Word meet my needs. So I can take a document and I can take another document and I can tell Microsoft Word, okay, so show me the differences, you know, either either A to B or B to A, and that'll that'll meet my needs most of the time. So I don't really have any I don't do much image work, so I don't have any needs to 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 look for that. Um but but text would be a place where uh, right where you're getting into markdown now. <laughs> right. See and and a diff tool gives you the ability to do word style change tracking across multiple like versions in Dropbox or Git. However, Ooh. I gotta mention, you ever use Multi Markdown Composer on the Mac? No, I have not. It is it, it's an outstanding app. It's my current favorite uh, Multi Markdown or Markdown editor, and um, it can do this thing where you can open a file and then compare it to another file, and it will create a critic markup version of the changes which you can then in its built-in preview see as a diff with you know green for insert red for deletions uh with comments and everything and it it it's it's an amazingly handy tool because then you have the critic markup version that you can send to someone else for review and they can accept or deny changes and it's pretty cool wow that's yeah that that seems worth checking out well plus uh critic markup is it's a it's a it's a viable system, but it's not easy to type without additional tools. And uh, Multi Markdown Composer literally, you can turn on change tracking, and everything you type just automatically gets critic markup surrounding it, uh, like the appropriate critic markup. It's it's the best way to do critic markup if you're if you're really into plain text and you want to be able to mimic some of uh, like words. Collaboration features—it's awesome. Well, and I've, I've never even heard of critic markup, but I, I've just made a note for for me to research that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tool by Gabe Weatherhead. Hmm. Uh, he was like kind of the genesis of it, and it's uh, it's got its own website and everything. It's pretty cool. Hmm. Very cool. All right, that was me, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you have one more, right? So my last pick is I annotate PDF. And this is for marking up uh, PDFs on the iPad. And this um, this is one of the few f- tools that I use that I think um, I didn't learn about it from anybody. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I researched it and I found it myself. And it is um, for one very specific application. It's been a game changer for me. And so one of the things that that uh, I do as a scientist or that, that any any good scientist will do is peer review. And so what happens in peer review is you are sent a manuscript. Um, uh, well, sent. I'm using, you know, dating myself. It used to be used to be sent do, uh, uh, printouts in the mail, but <laughs> that hasn't happened in a while. So you get sent a link to a website and and, and a PDF of a, of a of a manuscript that someone has submitted for publication in a journal. And so it's the job of anon- usually anonymous peer reviewers to comment on that at journal. And I I still have friends that, that like to print these things out and and mark the stuff up on paper. But I I you know moved long away from that. Moved away from that a long time ago but the 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 very cool thing about i annotate is 
you sit there with this uh, PDF document on your iPad and you can, you can open multiple tabs of the same document, which is really important because if you're reviewing a, a manuscript, you're going to want to be reading the text and then you're going to want to flip over to look at the tables or the figures or the references or, or something. Um, and, and basically it lets you, I mean, and again, this, this app can do a ton of different things, but the thing that, that really works for me is it allows you to find a section of text that you want to comment on. You highlight that text and then you click on the comment and then you type in your notes. Now, again, there's a, I'm sure a whole bunch of, and you can do this on, on, a, on a computer too, right? Any sort of PD, PDF annotating editing app will let you do this. But the, the, the key, the key feature here with iAnnotate is that once you're done reading that manuscript and marking it up, you can send those comments to yourself. And so you can send the annotated document, which is great to see the context, but most importantly, it in the body of the email, it basically pulls out each of those comments and then gives or each of those those sections of content. So, for example, if the if the if the in the manuscript it says that there was uh, you know something something something, and then I have a comment about that, it it line by line it gives the content of the manuscript and then my comment on it, and then. And then I just take that and that's just in, in the body of an email. I just take that, I throw it into a text editing app and I basically just go through and I, there's a, a little bit of formatting I have to take out. But for the most part, it gives me, essentially gives me the, what is probably 90 or 95% of my review right there where, you know, the authors said X and my comment is Y and it might be a trivial thing like a spelling error or a grammar error or it might be like, you know, this statement needs a reference or basically, you know, you're just completely wrong. Wrong here, and you're a total idiot. You know, whatever. I, you know, try not to write reviews that look like that. But, um, but it really, it's just, it, it allows me to do reviews in in when I'm on a plane and I, you know, I, and I'm stuck in coach and the jerk behind me reclines his his seat and I can't get my laptop out, but I can sit there with my iPad or I can sit on the couch or I can sit in a coffee shop and just basically review this thing and then send a. a an excerpt of that or, or uh, annotations from that to, to myself in a way that makes it just so much easier. And I do, I'm an editor for a journal and that means that I, I, I'm on the receiving end of a lot of reviews, but as a guy who's always hounding his colleagues to do reviews, I really feel bad about um, declining reviews. So I tend to accept a lot of them, which means I have a lot to do. And this lets me do it really efficiently. And it's just been, it's just, it's probably, I would say it's probably one of the top two or three apps that I use on, on my iPad and maybe even be the, the top app just because it just saves me so much time and it makes it just, it doesn't quite make it fun doing reviews, but at least it makes it as, uh, causing at least as little pain as possible. Nice. I, as you know, I'm a I'm a big plain text guy, but I do have a love for vector PDFs, and it's primarily because of this because you can mark up, uh, you can mark them up in visual ways, and you can add annotations that don't that aren't inserted in line, and that's something you really you can't do with just pure plain text. And I I think the ability to do that on an iPad well, like I've tried doing it. PDF Pen Pro is is awesome, um, and I haven't used uh, I annotate. Was that what it was called? Shoot, I annotate PDF. Yeah, I annotate PDF. I haven't used it a lot to make a comparison, but that ability to you know work in economy class flights is is definitely definitely a selling point. 
Because I'm going to become an editor someday. After I've been a writer for long enough. Sure. Is that what is that what you do? Like, you write long enough, and then you start (laughs) telling other people what to do. Well, yeah. So, so it depends what you mean by editor. So, so I'm an editor in that I edit the work that my graduate students produce, but, but in this particular context, I mean a journal editor. And so what that means is that basically I'm the guy at the journal who gets the submissions from the authors and then has to decide, okay, here's a paper on XYZ. I need to find three experts on XYZ that don't have a conflict of interest with this author who I know will accept my review, my, my offer to review and we'll do it on time. It won't take a lot of nagging. Um, and so basically it's, uh, it's not, I thought, I thought it would be a lot about like weighing the science and trying to be, you know, sort of having this sort of, uh, professorial scientific thing. Mostly it's about hounding people to do the thing that they said that they were going to do for you three, three weeks ago. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> Well, well that's, but, then come to think of it, that's what my editors do. Yeah, but it's it's kind of a it's it's, it's a but from you know again the game of science is you know you have if you want to be in the game you have to play the game and part of playing the game is being a being a good publisher of papers which gets gets you to be a good reviewer of papers which gets you to be an editor of a journal and it's just it's for better or worse that's the that's the game and again having you know we didn't talk about it in the podcast but having good tools having things like text expander having being able to navigate quickly to a website using something like one password that lets you, you know, remember all your passwords for all these different websites. All of those tools help you get in there and, and be efficient and, and do a good job at, at doing these things that are that are so aggravating, but that you need to do because it's your job. And and they're all only available on a Mac. Yeah. That would make it hard to switch to PC, I think. I, I think if somebody told, I mean, I've, I've, I thought about this as I thought about changing jobs. Um, it, if I had to change to a job where they made me use a PC, I, I don't, I don't think I would take that job. That would, that would really be a, a criterion for whether I accepted a job or not. Yeah. So I think the, the argument there ultimately comes down to, um, there are things you have to do on a PC and PCs are valuable because they can do some things that Macs can't. But if, if you don't need to do those things, you never use a PC. Yeah. I think. I agree. I agree. All right. My third one's kind of cool. It just came out today. Um, it is, it's from the same guy who brought us Slice Reader. Do you ever see Slice Reader? I have not. It takes uh, Markdown or web pages and it displays them one paragraph at a time. And you can navigate. And for me, reading long form articles, I never would have made it through Syracuse's Mavericks review <laughs> without this. Because it just presents it, it gives you a little tiny graph in the bottom, little pie chart to show you how far you've read through. But you're only seeing one paragraph at a time, and they're easy little chunks to read, and you can just drill through it. But that's not my pick. My pick is his new app, Letter, L-E-T dot T-E-R. And it's it's a very simple email, one-way email client. It can't read emails. It's not designed for organizing. But you can pop it up. You can write an email in Markdown and send a fully HTML formatted email. It's got full contact support, auto-completes email addresses, all of that. And it doesn't require mail to send the email. It's all built in. And it's uh, it's it's not expensive. I think it's $2.99 right now anyway. Um, and that's, that's it. It's a simple, it's a one-trick pony that is really good looking and really slick. Yeah, I saw you, talk, you were talking about this on the internet today. 
Yeah, I mentioned it. Uh, yeah, it, it looks it looks really very attractive for, for if you for again for those app, those times when all you got to do is you just want to send you don't want to read email you just want to send a really you know nice email in a really nice environment. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, there you, obviously you're going to have to run it in addition to an email client. You can't survive just sending without right. receiving. <laughs> well, if you if you can if you can do that, let me know. Yeah, but I mean, this is there there are Twitter clients that have the same kind of. Uh, they send only, and they're unobtrusive, and they keep you away from constantly checking your Twitter stream. Uh, it gives you a little more one-way communication, so it's more at your leisure when you check your Twitter stream. Same thing with email. If you're if you're smart, you're not on call for your email client. It's not giving you push notifications every time an email comes in, and uh, and this makes it possible to send good-looking emails without even having to risk reading all your unread emails. Very cool. All right. Well, that brings us to Squarespace. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DANSENTME12. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, over 70 Squarespace employees are on the customer care team, which is based in New York City. Squarespace truly cares about design, and it really shows throughout their entire website, uh, which they're always updating with fun new branding, and, and they've won multiple design awards for it. They have two brand new iOS apps for Squarespace customers. The Squarespace blog, which lets you easily draft, post, schedule, and review posts, as well as monitor and manage comments on your blog. Uh, Squarespace blog is fully integrated with their layout engine, allowing you to easily format text or markdown, tap and drag images within your post, and modify detailed post settings on the go. Squarespace uh, also has Squarespace metrics, which allows you to monitor website analytics like KPIs and page views and unique visitors, and projections and charts for your websites are at your fingertips, as well as iOS 7 updates for Note and Portfolio, and don't forget about audio collections for musicians and the amazing new 3D visualizer for shipping. As I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required, and if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month. Uh, that includes a domain name if you sign up for a full year. And make sure you get your 10% off and support this show by using the offer code DANSENTME12. So thanks to Squarespace uh, for supporting 5x5 and Systematic. Yeah, and I have just have to say, Brett, I'm a Squarespace user. Uh, we use it for our podcast, and I used it to set up a, a website for a nonprofit that I volunteer with. And it's just, it's fantastic. I've used them for a couple of boneheaded support questions, and they've been very, even though they were idiotic questions, they've been very helpful and got answers back to me right away. So I'm, I'm really impressed with them. They're, they're, they're a quality service. I hear good things. I've referred people there. I've helped people export from there. That is one thing I will say. Squarespace does make it relatively easy to take a year's worth of blogging and web design and export it. You're not stuck there. And to me, that's a huge deal. Yeah. Nothing lasts forever. 
Yeah, and if you're if you're the kind of nerd that like likes to set up websites for other people, and then eventually you have to turn the keys over to them, <laughs> I feel very comfortable turning over the keys to people because it's like it's all it's all just it's it's right there. It makes it easy for normal people to run a website. Yeah, I actually I stopped um, I stopped doing WordPress sites when sites like Squarespace got really good because like I used to do one-off WordPress sites for people, and then I'd be stuck maintaining and doing their upgrades for years. Mm-hmm. But with Squarespace, I can I can help them set up and walk away. Mm-hmm. It's nice. All right, so you have a Twitter account that is Bug Counter. Does that have anything to do with micro, microbial? Is that it, about it? It does. Um, we you know people who are microbiologists talk about micro, microbes as being bugs, and um, I'm a quantitative microbiologist, so I like to count things. And so uh, Bug Counter seemed like a natural Twitter handle. Brilliant. All right, and you're also on app.net as Don Schaffner, you think? Right. Did you check <laughs> yeah. that? I, you know, I, less, less and less. I, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a haphazard social media user. I will go uh, where I'll, I'll like, especially on the weekends when work quiets down and I'll just be like doing stuff and then the work picks up during the week and I just sort of drop off. But yeah, I, I will check app.net uh, from time to time. Um, <laughs> Not it's good to know it's method, there. Though. What's that? Not your preferred method of communication. Probably not. No. All right, and then your uh, your podcast has a website at foodsafetytalk.com. Indeed, and that, that as we were just talking, that's a Squarespace site. Uh, I, it's a podcast that I do uh, focused on on microbial food safety with my colleague uh, Ben Chapman at North Carolina State University, and uh, we do uh, we do a podcast about about two a month, about every two weeks. Um, so if you uh, if you're interested in micro, and we try to make it accessible, it's not it's it's focused on you know the people in the industry, but also the general public. If you have a, a passing interest in in food safety, um, check it out. Is is the picture at the top of your food safety talk website right now? Is that Bill Keen or is that? Yes, that is that that the most recent episode uh, was focused on um, uh, an epidemic, not Bill Keen, the Family Circle cartoonist. Yeah, no, I I was wondering if it was you at first, and then I started reading. (laughs) Because that's a great beard. It's it is a I you know I I used to have a a, a large beard. I now I have a, a smaller, more manageable beard. No, but that is that is Bill Keen. If you go to the previous episode, um, you'll see a picture of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. Yeah, yeah, he looks exactly <laughs> so. like um, Farley, Chris Farley. Yes, I, yes, I know. Isn't it amazing? That's a great picture. Yeah. So, and yeah, one of the things, again, talking about Squarespace, I mean, one of the things that I've decided for a long time, we just had the, the, the podcast, you know, the, the, the show notes, but it, Squarespace makes it so easy. Sorry, we're not doing the spot anymore, but it makes it so easy to throw in uh, pictures. I've just decided it makes it look so much nicer. So we did a tribute to epidemiologist Bill Keene, who passed away in an uh, untimely, uh, untimely death. And so we put that picture in there. And the, the one before that, we talked a lot about Rob Ford as we put in that picture. It just makes it really easy. And I think it, it makes the, the site more visually appealing and, and, I don't know, encourages people to maybe come there and, and check out what we have to say. Nice. Nice. I'm a firm believer in at least one image per blog post. Not much more than that most of the time, but mm-hmm. yeah, that makes it makes a big difference, especially when the picture is of Rob Ford. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, episode 76 with Don, Dr. Don Schaffner. Thanks a ton for being here. Oh, thank you, Brett. It's uh, it's it's uh, it wasn't as you know as I hear your voice a lot because I listen to podcasts, but it, it wasn't as disorienting as I thought to have your voice talking and me replying. So so thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> you don't normally reply, do you? 
<laughs> no. Okay. I'd be a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I am TT Scoff everywhere. Come find me. And I blog at brettterpstra.com. And you can also go to brettterpstra.com slash audio drop and, uh, and drop in a two to five minute recording of just saying hello. And, uh, and hopefully we'll find people who are interested in being on the show. So uh, it's kind of an audition, a casting call. But feel free to, uh, if you think you have an interesting story to tell, just let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And, uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back. In, the schedule may get wonky next week uh, with the holidays, but we'll be back soon. You will get you will get an episode next week. I won't say it's in one week though. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here, Don. And we'll see everybody soon. <laughs> <laughs>